Our foundation, our North Star under our administration is One Seattle. I make I need to make it crystal clear that we can't be One Seattle without West Seattle. Well, there's Seattle Mayor Bruce Harrell working in his One Seattle mantra once again to welcome West Seattle back after 900 plus days without the West Seattle Bridge. What happens to traffic patterns now after that long, long process? I'm a West Seattleite. Plenty to share there. Plus, some new tweaks to the Parks District budget plan and how Parks Rangers are utilized with regard to people who are homeless. Some policy to pull apart there. We'll even get into some changes coming to Seattle's families, education, preschool, and promise, Levy Baby. Yeah, all that and more this week on Seattle News, Views, and Brews, your Coffee Break political podcast. I'm Brian Callanan. I'm a host on Seattle Channel and the views expressed here are my own. I am joined by David Croman of the Seattle Times. And David, as always, great to see you. And my fast ferry using friend, I got to ask, when that summer schedule ends, as it's about to do at the end of this week, is it a time of mourning, a time to recognize that seasons change? How are you feeling this week? Yeah, I've, I I think they should keep that all the time because <laughs> not it really it's, it serves the people who live where I live. And it's, it's not really a tourist boat. And so I don't know what would be the difference between summer and the rest of the year so i'm disappointed uh, yeah yeah it's I, not like people still don't need to get over here on weekends so no. come on and not everybody works monday to friday i mean come on all right david very important point there thanks as always for joining me thanks also to our listeners thanks to city grind espresso too on the first floor of city hall they're our background noise sponsor for the audio podcast always great to hear from them thanks also to our patrons if you are a listener and not supporting the show come on now would love to have you at the $10 level, you get your limited edition Seattle News Fusion Brews coffee mug. I mean, come on. And we will feature you on our mugshot of the week. This week, Karen, with a lovely end of summer scene outside. Glorious finish to the season here of summer. What a great summer it's been. Thank you for the photo. Thank you for your support, Karen. Patrons, email us at seattlenewsviewsandbrews at gmail.com with your mugshot, too. Once again, if you listen, please become a patron. Seattle News Views and Brews on Patreon. Finally, thanks to Converge Media. The video of the podcast airs on Converge Wednesday nights at 7. We're going to get her going with right here, right now. So, folks, I always throw a bunch of information at David as we prepare for the podcast each week. And I wasn't sure what else to headline the segment other than it's just dang busy. So much stuff going on here, and a bunch of it we've been talking about over the past few weeks on the podcast, coming before the council for final approval or getting signed off by the mayor, city light increases, Seattle Film Commission, cannabis equity, appointing directors for different departments, the Third Avenue Vision Plan, and I think just after we put out this podcast, a big public safety announcement from Bruce Harrell might be the new police chief. We'll have to see there. But David, I always look at this time of year for the council just before the mayor's budget proposal comes out next week. This is the time to wrap up as many loose ends as possible before this onslaught of financial information comes in. Is that how you see it? Is that about right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's yeah, there's a lot of tying up of loose threads, but then there's also you also tend to see sometimes some new initiatives yeah. start around this time too, because as as kind of a signal that um, you know, because if you if you want funding for a project, uh, you, you kind of got to get that project going now so that mm-hmm. come budget season you can fight for funding. I think we'll probably end up talking more about this shortly, but I, th- I think we're kind of seeing that with the third Avenue stuff, um, mm-hmm. that there's a reason this is becoming, this is getting introduced and talked about now because, uh, council members are gearing up for their priorities and budget season. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's a time of, I would say it's a time of transitions, which is, 
loose ends that begin early in the year start trying to start trying to wrap them up. Mm-hmm. And then you start to see some um, signs of new new projects as well that, that are going to need some money asks tied to them. Yeah, and I wanted to bring in one slight eyebrow raiser, for me at least, the appointment of a new director of the Office of Police Accountability. This is Gino Betts. The council's Public Safety Committee discussed this last week. Councilmember Mosqueda abstained from voting to appoint him. She said she wanted some more stakeholder dialogue. But aside from that, I thought this was interesting. Betts has presented some very interesting ideas to the council, talking about making it an all-civilian department, talking about releasing all video footage from the police and police reports 30 days after a complaint is filed. Quite a departure from former OPA director Andrew Meyerberg's approach. And Betts even said if the SPD starts pushing back on some of these changes he's talking about, he'd publicly talk about it to the people of Seattle. Big props to Amy Sundberg's notes from the Emerald City for talking about this. And David, this idea of having a much more public figure as head of the OPA, I just wanted to bring that up. How does that strike you? You know, it's interesting. I think it. I think it's um, an approach that would make some uh, folks who have been pushing pushing for changes to policing happy. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a sense that uh, OPA directors of the past, most recently Andrew Meyerberg, were maybe. Mm-hmm too deferential to the police department, um, too deferential to the kind of rules of that office. Cause I mean, a lot of what he was doing was, uh, you know, he'd make changes and he'd say, look, this is the duty of this office. So, right. you know, I guess I suppose having a, an OPA director that is a little more confrontational around those rules and those limits, um, could be appealing to some people. Um, you know, I, I do think from, from when I used to cover this stuff, Mm-hmm. I was always surprised at some of the nuances um, and, and some of the things that maybe on the surface seemed like logical moves that even some surprising people would oppose. So you mentioned mm-hmm. civilization of the whole right. department. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's come up over a bunch over the years. Yeah. Uh, and and there have been some surprising folks that, that have actually kind of opposed that because, um, y- you know, I mean, it's, it's a specific skill set in some ways to be yes. a good investigator of misconduct complaints and you can't always find that skill set in the civilian world mm-hmm. um, you know i don't know i i'm not saying that's correct or incorrect but it is yeah. th- there is um has been some inter- interesting conversation around uh, how the office could actually become a lot less effective right if it was civilian i don't know but um you know it's it, i think yeah there's sort of top line changes that i think uh would would sound appealing to especially some police reform types that Right. Um, once you kind of get into the details, often ends up being a little more uh, complicated and, and nuanced. Yeah. And j- briefly on this, to wrap this up, this whole idea of taking the SPD on, I guess you could call it, as the department is losing officers, having trouble retaining them, as the Police Officers Guild is still without a contract. I just wonder what type of approach this signals, because Mayor Harrell knew what he was getting into and in putting Gino Betts in this role. Does it send some sort of signal to SPOG or the police department when you look at those negotiations or the department in general? What do you think? Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not sure what signal it sends, um, yeah. SPD. I mean, <laughs> there is no love lost for OPA in SPD. I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, in some ways, it doesn't matter. You know, Andrew Myrick, again, I think was kind of a rule follower as far as mm-hmm. what that office did or did not allow him to do. Yeah. And even despite that, you know, I think he was, uh, you know, you hear a ton from employees of the Seattle Police Department who uh, do not like him, nor do they yeah. like the OPI, OPA office. So, you yeah. know, just because, so I, I don't know. I mean, I think yeah. um, it's hard for me to imagine that you get more confrontational between SPD <laughs> and OPA, but, yeah. um, you know, 
it's possible, I suppose. I guess we'll have to see. We'll have to see. Well, thanks for breaking that piece down with me, David. I wanted to move on to another small story with some bigger undertones to it this, this week. And there's a ton to choose from here, folks, from the city council. But the FEP levy, the Families, Education, Preschool, and Promise levy, is getting a little bit of a tweak. The Seattle Preschool Plan specifically is changing its sliding scale program. I wanted to focus on this. And SPP, SPP, just some background here, folks, began in 2015. The idea was to provide free preschool for kids three to five, so pre-kindergarten here. This is for families in need. And the way it was set up, families who were making 300% of the federal poverty level could get that free preschool. There's a sliding scale tuition above that point. And I was interested in this, David, because that threshold will now be raised up to 350% of the federal poverty level. And the first thing that might grab you is 350% of the federal poverty level is $87,600 for a family of four. And I don't know how these poverty levels exactly are determined here, David, but trying to sustain a family of four on $87,000 living in Seattle, maybe it's just the inflation talking, but that kind of blew me away. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, $87,000 uh, for a family of four is um, very little in the city of Seattle, especially if you're trying to afford childcare, which, uh, right. you know, if, if you're doing, you know, if you're doing part-time childcare, it's, it's minimum a thousand, yep. a thousand bucks a month, probably yep. more. Um, yep. So, yeah, I mean, uh, you, you kind of get the same shock too, when you see, you know, area median income hitting, uh, you know, or like the, the people that would qualify for affordable housing, for example. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. People making $70,000 a year are qualifying for this 80% AMI, you know, and yeah. it's just kind of a, a signal of the numbers that maybe once upon a time sounded like a middle-class salary just really doesn't yeah. not cut it in Seattle anymore. No, no, in terms of where people can live. And I remember paying a thousand bucks a month for a kid in childcare, and this was, shoot, oh, more than 12, 13 years ago. I mean, so... These things happen. Uh, this this is a big deal, and, and these costs are real. And I've always just looked at this levy on a larger scale, David, as a very interesting interaction between the city and its school system. And it is all about dollars here. Voters approved this back in 1990, if you can remember that, folks, as the Families and Education Levy. They just called it that. And it was about some after-school programs, a few odds and ends here. But it has since grown into a major program that now runs a preschool program, offers free tuition and can, into community colleges. And in case you're wondering, it's up for renewal in 2025. But I just wanted to look bigger picture here with you, David. What does it say to you that this levy has grown so much over the years? And what does that say about our school system? Well, I think it, I think it reflects, um, you know, there was, there was a period um, kind of, you know, 2015, 2016, mm-hmm. where uh, it was right on the heels of the $15 minimum wage. And there was a yeah, lot of conversation yeah. happening around what are there, what are some other sort of um, significant strides that you could take? Anti-poverty strides, basically. What what are yeah. some areas? And at the time, in particular, there was this sense that preschool was a really good avenue for people. It would yeah. set, set young people onto a path that would carry them through mm-hmm. for kind of the rest of their lives, and that was sort of one of you know, along with raising the minimum wage, was kind of mm-hmm. seen as a pillar of. Um, lifting people out of poverty. Yeah, helping some of the families, research, you bet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Some of the research since then has, um, you know, been a little more uh, on the fence about mm. that, but it was definitely born out of um, a, a belief that education and public education was really a, a key to anti-poverty measures. And so yeah. I think um, that understanding combined with rising housing costs uh, have, have made it so uh, 
people in Seattle are more sympathetic to um, the burdens of, and, you know, people with kids and families, they tend to be good, mm-hmm. you know, voters. They've been through it themselves. They're sympathetic yeah. families that have to try and find childcare. Right. Um, so it's, yeah, it's one of those issues that, you know, I think the last levy passed with, you know, 75% of the vote yep. or something like that. It's yep. uh, highly popular seen as a sort of in the grand scheme of things, a cheap way to, uh, alleviate some of the burdens of living in a really expensive city. I appreciate you talking about that with me, David. All right, so up next, you thought the education levy was exciting. Well, we've got some numbers to crunch on the Park District, too. Those details coming up on Now Hear This. Okay, so concurrently with the overall city budget process, we have a Park District budget to consider. Mayor Bruce Harrell released his $114 million vision for that last week. And this week, the district board, which is made up of all the city council members, is considering a plan from board president Andrew Lewis to raise that investment to $117 million, so $3 million more. A lot of hand-wringing going on about raising the tax burden for your average Seattleite. Councilmember Sarah Nelson went down this line of reasoning in this Monday's meeting. We want to reduce what we are charging our property owners, including, you know, nonprofit housing providers, et cetera, and if, if, and how that can be adjusted as um, new money comes in potentially and also um, difficulty spending what we're already allocating in this resolution. So, David, I want to make sure I point this out from the start. What Councilmember Lewis is proposing would end up being just over nine bucks more per year than what the mayor proposed in the first year of this program, getting up to about 18 bucks per year over the course of this six-year program, but not a huge overall hit to taxpayers in terms of what uh, Councilmember uh, Lewis is talking about. And I bring this up because we clearly have a challenge in Seattle parks. They need help in terms of cleanliness, and they need some capital expansion too. But I'm really seeing with this, the council, from what I can tell, is trying to be very careful to stay pretty close to what the mayor is proposing. I mean, $3 million is almost a rounding error, uh, error when you sure. look at the size of the uh, the Seattle budget. Yes, um, it is. Um, you know, I think I think there's they're probably looking forward to other kind of major property tax proposals that they're going to have to put on the ballot. I, you mm-hmm. know, transportation reporter, of course, I'm thinking of the move Seattle levy, which will be the sure. big one. Um, so yes, they're they're being conscious of it. Also, at the same time, um, I think one of the major attraction attractions of Seattle is its is its parks. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm, uh, and and you know, as you mentioned, uh, parks have have sort of managed to find themselves to be um, at the center of a lot of the most hotbed issues in Seattle in a way that maybe they hadn't before, which is around uh, camping and, yep. and public homelessness and. Yep. Um, you know, th- this conversation comes up at a time when, when that is kind of superheated. Oh, yeah, it is. And, and you're you're segueing right where I would love to go with this, because another issue that's taken up a lot of focus around this from the mayor and the council, the mayor, as part of his plan with this district budget, wants to revivify basically the Parks Ranger program. Publicola writing about this, a few other places, too, raising the concern that these Parks Rangers many years ago were used to roust people who were homeless from our parks, which was not their intended purpose. So the council this week going to great lengths to include a resolution in this budget pointing out that Parks Rangers will not be used in any encampment removals. This is a law that Seattle put on the books 10 years ago. But David, it's one of these situations where it feels like when the council, the city goes to such great lengths to prove that this thing is not going to be happening and is not going to be a problem. And I'm not saying it will be, but clearly the park rangers program is going to get some scrutiny after all of this. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, um, you know, I, I, 
people sort of forget that rangers, uh, you know, is a law enforcement term. That, yes. Um, you know, obviously less so at a city level, but you think mm-hmm. of national park rangers. You know, yep, yep. Those are law enforcement. Those They went through the academy. You know, they're yep, yep. police officers. Um, and so I think I think this is a little bit of a revival of the 2020 conversations that we were hearing around policing and the role of policing, especially as it comes to homelessness. Mm-hmm. And so the scrutiny and the kind of uh, assurances that the city council are trying to give are seem to be a reaction to that, which is uh, m- more questioning around what, um, yeah, are, are, are the park rangers going to be sort of serving a law enforcement mm-hmm. purpose or, or to, to what extent? Um, and, and, you know, sweeps, people have been talking about sweeps and mm-hmm. how or if or when or, you know, to do them uh, for, for years now. And um, so, you know, this is, as we were saying, parks have, found themselves kind of at the intersection of a lot of issues uh, in homelessness and now I think the park rangers program um, policing uh, as well. Right. And, and to be clear, folks, 99.9% of what these rangers do is give a verbal warning and uh, people adhere to that. They do have the power to ban people from parks. That's happened maybe only a couple of times. People bringing firearms into Discovery Park. I read about that. So this is really what this group is doing to try to have some extra eyes out there. But there's another interesting twist to this, David, at least to start off with. These 28 park rangers that the mayor wants to bring on would only work in parks downtown. And this is based on a 2008 agreement between the city and the Seattle Police Officers Guild. Spog, once again, in the background here. So as the Parks Rangers program starts growing, though, I really wonder how other neighborhoods might say, hey, can we get a couple rangers up here on the north side? Or how about down at Rainier Beach? And I know that these rangers, again, are only doing these verbal warnings, but it does feel, again, David, maybe about a larger conversation here, too, about this alternative to law enforcement that's going to involve some sort of negotiation with the uh, police officers guild. Yeah, yeah, I don't I don't know about that. Uh, it's it's a complicated inside baseball for sure. I just thought yeah, I'd bring it up. I, I don't I don't know exactly how that agreement will work out. Anytime Spark is involved, um, things <laughs> tend out. to get a little things tend to get a little more complicated. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't I've I've no idea how how that kind of shapes itself out. I, I get, just thinking about the demand for it though. I mean, I think it'll be a new service that Seattle could have on the streets and I think just having it downtown that's cool, but I Again, this gets into the Seattle's not just about downtown, it's about its neighborhoods, too. And I just get the feeling that there are some other neighborhoods that are going to want to be involved in this. So what do you think? Yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, I mean, every every neighborhood has their parks. And, and as we've seen, um, while downtown, I think, has been the focus of a lot of, uh, you know, visible homelessness and, and yes. all that. It's not a downtown issue any longer. Um, in Ballard Commons, you think of that was... Uh, a place where there were a lot of people camping. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll, we'll see what plays out with this. I, that whole deal with with Spog uh, looked like a real curveball to me when I was reading about this in some of the negotiations. But a lot still ahead with this Parks District budget. A lot still ahead for what's going on with the overall budget. So there's plenty to be talking about here between the mayor and the city council. But suffice it to say, these Parks Rangers are going to get a lot of scrutiny in the weeks and months ahead. All right. Well, I wanted to talk about something else uh, transportation-wise here with you, David, and that would be the Transportation Committee tackling a few interesting issues this week, putting a few more tweaks on the uh, Safe Start program for outdoor cafes. We've been tracking that. But I wanted to talk about this Employer Shared Transit Stops program. 
So this is the setup where Microsoft or other big employers have their own buses or vans around the city. Seattle has welcomed these for the most part. The city started a pilot in 2017, allowing these rigs to use metro bus stops, load zones, other things. But now, just got real here, folks. The council wants to make this a permanent program, set up a formal application process, and also start charging some larger fees. I'm seeing three of them in this proposal, David. A permit fee that was $300. That was a number set back in 2005. It's going to go to $600, tie it to inflation there. There's a new hourly staff fee of $300 an hour for load zone and shared stop reviews. So there's some work going on there. And an annual shared transit stop use fee, $5,000 per year per stop. I wanted to make sure I got all that info out there. And I know this is just in the committee period, David, but do you think big employers are going to push back on this? I was interested to see those those dollar figures there. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I mean, as you mentioned, though, these these fees haven't been hiked for a long time, uh, almost 20, well, 18, 17, 17 years, years, whatever yeah. it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, inflation has, has gone much faster than that. Um you know, I, I don't I don't know what employers will do, um, but I think there is a you know especially out of Microsoft and uh, you know you see Expedia shuttles and things like oh, yeah. that. You hear from these companies talk about that they're motivated to uh, not have as much parking and, and encourage their employees to mm. find alternative ways of getting there. So you know they 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 might push back a little bit, but these shuttle programs, as far as I can tell, are pretty important to. Yeah. Uh, these companies and but really only work if they have you know kind of central gathering places where people right go. i mean frankly they really only work if they work sort of like a bus does yeah right uh, right with that kind of regularity for sure you it, know it's it, yeah go ahead whenever whenever there's this kind of private entry point into the mm-hmm. uh, transit system is interesting to me um I, you know, I don't know that we've ever really seen a ton of backlash to that in Seattle. I know in San Francisco and stuff, you hear stories about people like egging the Google shuttles and things like that. That was, <laughs> that was probably more about gentrification. And they don't like Google. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. Than it was about, uh, you know, cutting into the transit system. But, sure, sure. you know, I, I do know that there has been some argument in the past of, uh, you know, it's sort of the private school, public school argument that private yeah. schools siphon money away from public schools. You mm. know, I, I think there has been some argument that these shuttles uh, could siphon uh, traffic and revenue away from public transportation. At the same time, I'm not sure the choice of these is between uh, these shuttles and public transportation. It's more likely a choice between these shuttles and the, all those individuals driving to work. Right. Which right. is why I think they have basically enjoyed fine support. Uh, oh, Yeah. Right, I mean, from the city and government, and and I think really uh, those shuttles were born out of uh, frustration with some of these different public transportation options not getting these employees yeah. where they wanted to go. So, in a sense, I think you've got these different options that are are helping our transfer, transportation system at least in some way. And do you have a feel for that at all? How much these employer shared transit options make? Like how much of an impact they actually make on the roads? I always see a ton of them out there. I'm seeing. Expedia, Microsoft, I know Children's Hospital does one here in Seattle proper. Any thoughts about that? How big of an impact do these have? I don't I don't know. I, I, no, I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't yeah. know how many are on the road at any given yeah. point or how you would measure impact. Um, yeah, yeah that's, will, that's, I, that's part of this, too. They don't have enough data on this. I right. think that's a big, why, a big reason why Seattle's pushing the pause button here. I will be interested to see if there's some change. I mean, this is very long term, but, you know, mm-hmm. some changes around because you've got light rail going out to um, basically right by the Microsoft campus. And yeah. eventually, and emphasis on eventually, you would have 
a stop in Interbay near Expedia. Yep. Um, so, I, you know, I think that will be kind of interesting to see if um, there is some changes around these shuttle programs when those stops open up. Of course, yeah. well, we're, we're, we're not too far off from the Microsoft one, but um, we're, we're quite a ways off from the Expedia one. So, um, yeah, yeah that, that'll be interesting uh, if, if the city or, you know, Sound Transit kind of pushes these companies to actually take advantage of these multi-billion dollar transit facilities right. that are right. run right through their campuses. Yeah. That we're all paying for. Good observation. We we will definitely be tracking what's happening there. And I know you're always on top of those issues, so much appreciated. We're going to keep talking transportation here because the West Seattle Bridge is finally open after two and a half years of being shut down. How's that going to impact how we get around? We're going to talk about that and a whole lot more with David here on Transportation Talk. Well, David, you covered the reopening of the West Seattle Bridge after a 900-plus day closure uh, over this past weekend. A bit of an emotional day for me. I live here. But I wanted to figure out what were the reactions you were seeing as you checked out that kind of flash mob video thing that was going on there with the bridge. There were some excited yeah. people out there. Well, thank you for, for tipping me off to that, and uh, especially yeah, to, our, of course. to our photo team who, didn't, who wanted to find some photos of people celebrating the bridge, but... Uh, couldn't, of course, do that in advance of the bridge being open until we connected with these these folks filming this video. Yeah, full disclosure, um, I gave David a, p- a tip about this. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, you know, I mean, you can speak to this better than I can because I'm yeah. not a West Seattle resident. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's exactly what you'd expect, which is a sense of isolation that people have felt for the last yeah. two and a half years. And now a major corridor has been reconnected. Uh, for me, the kind of in some ways, the people who I, I heard the most relief from were not West Seattleites, but the, mm. you know people in Georgetown and South right. Park and uh, Highland Park area where, where all those cars had been rerouted. And mm-hmm. then, of course, you know, anytime you're in traffic, car drivers look for shortcuts through neighborhoods oh, yeah. and things like that. And a lot of concerns about safety there. So yeah. I think there's kind of a, a sigh of relief, particularly among these South Seattle neighborhoods that were consuming a lot of the detour traffic. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's um, I think people also uh, glommed onto it because it's a well, it's I wouldn't call it a good news story because the bridge has been closed. <laughs> Shouldn't have broken in the first but place. A good, yeah, mm-hmm. a good daily for that. For the day it was opening, it felt good for people. And yeah, uh, yeah. people like feeling good at a time when that's maybe not always um, easy to do. So fair, fair. And there was some congestion on the bridge on, on day two. So don't worry about that. People, people yeah. are using it uh, just briefly on that. Do you have a feel for how this is going to impact traffic. I mean, this was, again, it, it timed out with the with the pandemic almost right on top of it. So it was difficult to tell about how it impacted things at least immediately. But do you have a feel for now how adding this major piece of infrastructure, 100,000 people a day, uh, were using it in its prime there. How is this going to impact traffic with the West Seattle Bridge reopening? Yeah, that, that'll be interesting because, like you said, it was 100,000 drivers a day, 20,000 oh, transit users a day. Right. Right. Uh, and so that it's a pretty clear barometer we can use to see, you know, how have people changed their habits, both, mm-hmm. you know, because, of course, everyone has adjusted due to the pandemic and there's more yep. remote work. But then I would imagine that people in West Seattle have become even more adaptive to, uh, you know, created other uh, avenues. Maybe they work from home even more than the rest of the city or, or yep. whatever it might be. So, uh, no, I don't I don't know what it'll look like, but it'll be interesting to see just how much of that traffic comes back and so right uh, and you know like i said a, a decent barometer for the overall state of um, people actually commuting in to downtown to work 
Right. Yeah. And I, I think too about the route that I use often going down. I live on the further south end of, of West Seattle and I use that that route down Roxbury and the First Avenue South Bridge, et cetera. And I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that I can still do that because that turned into a good option for me. So I think people will look at these different routes and we'll have to see what pans out with that. But yeah, it's uh, an interesting week here, folks, to to see it come back online. And uh, I've done one lap on it so far, right when it opened, because I was so excited. But I haven't given it the true traffic test. So I'll, I'll make sure I, I get back to you on that one. But David, <laughs> uh, time, time to wrap up here. I got to ask, it's crunch time for the Mariners with two weeks left in the season. Bit of a confession time, if you will. Are you looking at the top of the standings in the AL wildcard race and saying, okay, how can we beat out Tampa Bay and Toronto? Or are you looking at the bottom and saying, okay, let's not let Cleveland and Chicago back in this thing. Where, where are you at on this one? Well, I think my and my end goal is the Mar- I want the Mariners to make the playoffs. So whatever right. whatever they do to, to make the playoffs. Stay out and of the, the way, Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. The bonus would be I want the Mariners to either finish, finish first in the wild card or third in the wild card. <laughs> first, you get some home games, and that would be fun. Third, statistically seems like actually out of all three positions, finishing third would be the best because mm-hmm. then you play – the AL Central winner, who is who's going to be worse than either Tampa Bay or Toronto, and if you win that, if you win that, then you play the Yankees instead of the Astros, and you'd rather play the Yankees than the Astros. So, and actually, probably the Mariners' chances of making it far into the playoffs are probably increased if they finish third. But it would be fun to have some home games. So, I I really hope they finish first. Look at the big brains on David, man. That's cool, man. Nice breakdown. Not mine. I read it somewhere. No, I no, no, no. It's cool. I, I like uh, uh, thinking about the pathways there, but we still got to get there. Yeah, just get there. Give it another couple of weeks, and we'll see what happens. David, as always, thank you for for sharing with me and and uh, going over these important stories, including the Mariners. We're going to break that that playoff drought this year, folks. I can't wait. Thanks to everybody listening out there. It's Seattle News, Views, and Brews, where you can always find out what's brewing in local politics. This podcast is available on all the major platforms. And once again, if you are a listener. Please support support the show on Patreon. Can't do it without you. Thanks for watching on Converge Media 2. We will see you next time. Seattle News, Views, and Brews is an independent production of Callanan Media Services. Copyright 2022.